All right, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. We continue looking at the Lord's Prayer, which isn't really the Lord's Prayer. It's really our prayer. It's the way Jesus teaches us to pray. And we saw a couple of weeks ago, we looked at, uh, this, is, this may be a prayer that you're familiar with, that maybe at some point uh, early on in your childhood you memorized this prayer. And so last, uh, last time I preached, two weeks ago, we looked at the first prayer, right, the first petition, hallowed be your name, that strange word, hallowed, that we don't, we don't use anymore. And what we saw was that really that was a prayer that God would bring glory to himself that he would glorify his own name. And so then what we learn from that is that our ultimate aim, our very purpose for living is that we ought to glorify the name. We have to ask God to do that in us, but that our aim is to glorify the name. But then that leads us to ask the question, how does that happen? How is God's name exalted? How is God's name glorified? And that's where... The second prayer, the second petition comes in where we, where we ask God for his kingdom to come. May your kingdom come. And so read with me. I'm going to read starting verse 9 and go through 13. We're going to read the whole prayer, but we're going to focus today on your kingdom come. Let's read. Well, I'll read. You can read along silently. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious Father, our King, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand? Lord, I ask for grace as I preach that this would be clear, Lord, that we would be able to understand what your Word is saying to us, that we would be able to apply it to our hearts, that we, your people, and those we interact with, with would know that you are the king of the universe, and our loyalty belongs with you. So, Lord, give us your grace now in preaching and in reading and in hearing. Do your good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The fourth story in the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, technically it was the second book published, but now it's the fourth story. I digress. Prince Caspian, right? Uh, What's happening in Prince Caspian, this is the story that comes after the well-known story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, right? And it's about Narnia. Narnia is this mythical country. These books are written by C.S. Lewis. And Narnia, the kingdom of Narnia, belongs to Aslan, right? He is the great king. Uh, He is a lion. And he is Lewis's Jesus figure, okay? So Narnia belongs to Aslan. It is his. He created it. He made it. He rules it. And yet what we find in 
Prince Caspian is when our, when our heroes return to the land of Narnia uh, 1,300 years, Narnian years after they had left it, that a rival kingdom has moved in, right? Uh, the, vicious, the vicious people, the Telmarines, have come in and they have taken control of Narnia. And so Narnia, Narnia used to be this, this beautiful country uh, where animals talked and you had dwarves and you had elves and you had sprites and you had all of these different mythical creatures and there was, there was great beauty and there was great harmony. But when the Telmarines come in, when this rival kingdom comes in and it begins to take control of Narnia, right, when our heroes show back up, they realize that Narnia is a very different place. It's a very broken place. Their own castle is destroyed or at least is in ruins. A lot of the animals don't talk anymore. They've gone mute. And a lot of the creatures, some of, some of the creatures who were good have become cynical and bitter, and so they have now become evil. They're now bad dwarves. They're bad creatures. Uh, and then the Narnians as a whole are in hiding. They're oppressed, um, and the Telmarines rule the country. And so, and, and probably most distressing of all, Aslan has been all but forgotten, just a mythical figure, a painting on a cave wall. And what Lewis is doing is he is giving us a picture of what has happened in our own reality, right? Um, see, when we, when we get to this prayer and we say, when we ask God that his kingdom would come, it kind of, it sounds a little bit confusing because isn't God already the king? I mean... Right? Don't Christians believe that God is the king and that he's in control and that he's ruling in heaven? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? And so what in the world are we asking for? Why are we asking that God's kingdom would come if, in fact, God is already king? Uh, but as Augustine, a 4th century saint, says um, that light is uh, light is absent to one who closes his eyes right to one to one who closes his eyes and rejects li- rejects light he acts as if there is no light and so what's happening in our own world is that god in fact is king we just refuse to see it and the reason we refuse to see it is because a rival kingdom has moved in and set itself up right and the bible says that, that is nothing less than the kingdom of satan himself Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Uh, Paul will call him the God of this world. Right? And so what we find in the pages of the New Testament especially is that there is a rival kingdom. And in 2 Corinthians 4, says, Paul says, uh, when he's talking about the God of this world, he says he blinds the minds of people to the glory of God. That the reason we refuse to see God's glory, the reason we refuse to participate in his kingdom is because our eyes have been blinded by a rival ruler. Someone, has come, someone else has come in and tried to take God's place. And so we have to pray that God would come back, that God would establish his royal rule in our own hearts and to the ends of the world. And this is a, this is a, this is a difficult sermon to preach because this is really the message of the whole Bible. right? If you were going to ask, what is the Bible about? What is Christianity about? What is the Bible about? You would have to say that it is about God establishing his kingdom, right? His kingdom order. Um, 
from the very beginning of the Bible where God appears as the righteous ruler to the very end where he reappears as the righteous ruler. Everything in between is God bringing his kingdom. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of scripture to cover in a prayer like this. But what we're praying is that God would establish his rule. That's what we mean by his kingdom. His rule in our hearts and across the whole world. And there's a couple of ways that we do this, right? There's a, there's a few things wrapped into this prayer. And the first one is this, that we are praying for God's rule to destroy Satan's kingdom, right? Which that sounds, maybe it sounds mythical to you, or maybe it sounds really warlike to be part of the Bible, but that, in effect, is what we are praying for. We are praying that God would destroy Satan's kingdom. You know, one of the, one of the most common objections to Christianity is the problem of evil, evil. Right, people will say you say that you say that God is in control and that he is good. And yet and yet my mom has cancer or yet so and so died in a car accident or a young man filled with hatred murders innocent people. So if you can how can you say that God is good and in control when awful things happen in the world? And one at least one way to answer that question, one, one way to answer that objection is to go to Genesis 3, where this talking snake tempts the first humans, Adam and Eve, into believing a lie. Right? If you were to read the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you would see that Adam and Eve, their job is to take this garden, this garden sanctuary they've been put into, and to expand it to fill the whole world. So their, their job is to glorify God's name by spreading his kingdom. And the king, God, has given them one rule. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. And it's at that point in the story that the serpent come in, right, this early appearance of Satan himself, and what he does is he calls the king's authority into question, right? He asks, did God really say you couldn't eat of the trees in the garden? And Eve responds, she answers the objection, Some, she gets it right for the most part, and then the, certain, the serpent just comes out and says it. He says, your God is a liar, right? Because Eve says, what Eve tells the serpent is, no, God says we can't eat of the fruit of this tree <clears throat> or we will die. And the serpent says, you're not going to die. In fact, you're going to have real knowledge. So here, paraphrasing is what the serpent says. Your king is a liar. He doesn't want you to be like him. Right? And that's the lie. That's the lie that not only they believe, but every single one of us begin, begin life believing. That the king is a liar, and I have to strike out on my own. That, that, in, order, that in order to really have life, I have to reject the king's authority and claim my own. But of course we know what happens, right? We see what happens in the world when, when they do that. They believe the lie, and they open the door and lay the foundation for a rival kingdom, right? What the Bible calls a kingdom of darkness. So God is in control, and for his own mysterious purposes, he lets this happen. He lets this rival kingdom come in. And sin and wickedness have their way in the world, right? Um, there is a rival king who is blinding the minds of people 
to their own wickedness. And the aim of this kingdom is to ruin God's name. Satan's purpose in setting up this kingdom is to ruin God's name. As I said, Jesus calls him the ruler of the world. Paul calls him in Ephesians 2 the prince of the power of the air. He's the one who's at work in the sons of disobedience. And so we know this. Wherever, wherever you see an outbreak of evil, that is the kingdom of darkness at work. Right? The kingdom of darkness was at work in Charleston, South Carolina, and in Baltimore, Maryland, and in every other place, and in, and in Clanton, Alabama. Right? Where, there are, where there is injustice, where there is murder, where there is strife, where there is gossip, where there is hatred, where there is bitterness, where there is envy, that is the kingdom of darkness at work in the sin and lives of people, of average human beings. You know, it's called, it's called treason when you try to overthrow a government or a ruler. And what Satan is engaged in is cosmic treason. He wants to overthrow the ruler of this universe. Because he wants to overthrow God himself. And you and I are complicit in the treason. We're part of it. Right? Our first parents laid the groundwork, but we have followed in their footsteps. Because we live under this delusion that we are the center of the universe. Right? I can rule myself. Thank you very much. I'll decide which fruit I want to eat off of which trees. Thank you very much. I don't need anyone telling me how to live my life. Thank you very much. We love self-rule. And I imagine that the root of 99% of your shame and your guilt is rooted in that very thing, this lie, this delusion uh, that God will not rule my life, that I will rule my life instead. So here's the good news. This rival king is no match for the real king. This rival kingdom is no match for the kingdom of God. Satan is no match for God himself because he's a created being. God created him. He's a fallen angel. He's more powerful than me, but he's not more powerful than God Almighty. And you see this when Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament. Uh, If you're familiar with the life of Jesus, you know that the very first thing that Jesus does before he begins his ministry is that he goes into the desert, he goes into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan himself. Have you ever wondered why Jesus did that? Why, in fact, he had to do that, right? That Mark's gospel says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to do that, like you would drive cattle. Jesus had to fast and, to had, and had to face his adversary in the desert. Why? To declare war. To let the ruler of this world know that his time is limited. And that the real king has come. Because what you see happening as soon as Jesus defeats Satan in the, in the wilderness, right? As soon as he defeats the tempter... I mean, here's exactly what happens, right? Remember, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, and he says, and he tells them a lie, and he tempts them, and they believe him, and they fall. 
So here's how, that's how the Old Testament begins. Here's how the New Testament begins. A son of Adam faces the tempter, and he tells him lies. But this time, the son of Adam does not believe the lies. He conquers the father of lies with the truth. And he puts Satan on notice, right? He kicks in the door of the kingdom of darkness, and he says, it's over. The kingdom of light is going to reign, and your time is limited. You will not be the ruler of this world for very long. And you see that in Jesus' ministry, right? When he starts on his ministry, what does he do? His ministry consists of mainly three things. Teaching, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, healing, and casting out demons, right? What is Jesus doing? What, what, what's, the, what's the deal, especially with those miracles? Why, does it, why is Jesus' word accompanied by these miracles? Because Jesus is conquering the kingdom of darkness, right? He would, say to, he, he would say to his friends and everyone who listened to him that the kingdom is at hand, right? Jesus says that uh, as soon as he gets on the scene. He says, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, so in one sense, the kingdom has already come. It came when Jesus arrived, and he proved it by defeating the enemies of darkness and by undoing the effects of sin, by raising people from the dead, by curing illnesses no one could cure. The point of all the miracles is that Jesus is saying, I'm the king, and I'm going to make it right. I'm going to restore things the way that they were meant to be. So here's what this means for our prayers. As we pray that that God would conquer Satan's kingdom, what we're praying is that we would see people set free, that we would see people around us rescued from sin and darkness and brought into the light. We want to see the kingdom of Satan thrown down. And the way that that happens, right now anyway, is through the preaching of the gospel, right Because the gospel is the message of the kingdom, that the king has come. And that leads us to the second thing we pray for. We pray for God's rule through the Spirit in the church. Right? The message of the kingdom is the good news. And the good news is that the real king has come. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene... Right? It's the day that the Old Testament prophets longed for, the day that they were waiting for, for, Jesus to sh- for God to break into history and rescue his people. And so that's why when Jesus shows up, he says, the kingdom is here. And nobody needs an explanation. Nobody, nobody needs them explaining, okay, now what is the kingdom of God exactly? They were waiting for it. They were waiting for John the Baptist to say, the kingdom of heaven is close. And they were waiting for the Messiah to come and say, here's the kingdom. And when he shows up, he says, here I am. The kingdom is here. Now believe. And so what we also see is that that doesn't stop with Jesus. Jesus is not the only one who talks about the kingdom. If you read the book of Acts and the building of the early church, the message they proclaim is the message of the kingdom. But yet, oddly, it's a message that's absent. That word kingdom is very absent from our message. We talk about salvation and we use the word gospel, but we don't really think much about a kingdom. Why is that? Why do we leave leave out the very word that so much of the New Testament puts in? Jesus' life and message was all about the kingdom of God. What are we about? 
right? I think at least one answer to that question, the reason that it's not a part of our message is that the message of salvation is really a message of submission. The message of salvation is really a message of submission, a message that we must submit to the king. We must bow the knee. That's what the message of salvation is, that if you want to be saved, as the Bible puts it, then you have to submit to King Jesus, that you cannot live for yourself, and you most certainly cannot live for any other God. There is only one king, and he demands everything. And that, Now, that may sound really harsh, right? Especially to those of us, uh, especially in, you know, in America, we don't have a king. We don't even really know what it means to live underneath the king. Uh, what we do know is that we, uh, the reason we fought for our independence is because we didn't like the king, right? Uh, and so when we hear that there's a king and he wants us to submit, we kind of buck up against that. We don't really like that message. But here's the thing about this king. He's good. And unlike... And unlike every other king you would give your loyalty to, this one won't hurt you. This one won't leave you. This one won't, won't leave you wanting for more. Right? This king is really the best thing you could possibly have. And so he says, submit. Right? This is why Jesus can say, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke. By the way, a yoke is what you put on an ox to make him go the right way, right? Jesus says, take my yoke on you, right? So submit yourself to my direction. If you're weary, if you're burdened, come to me and submit. And what does he say? I will give you rest. So he's not a king who wears you out. He's a king who gives you rest. He's not a king who enslaves you more. He's a king that sets you free. Free to live as you were meant to live, as you were made to live. Friend, you weren't made to be, in, to be a slave to your passions. You weren't made to be a slave to your lust, to your desires, to your addictions. You weren't made for that. You weren't made to be a slave to your own self-righteousness or to your pride. You were made to submit to God and be free. Free to love one another and free to love Him. And that's what Jesus says when He calls us to the kingdom. That's what it means for our prayers now that when we pray this, when we pray for God to rule in our hearts and in the church through the Spirit, what we're praying really is a prayer that we would submit, that we would stop trying to run the show and submit to God's rule. And then the last thing, the last aspect of this prayer that we're going to look at today is that this is really a prayer of longing. It's a prayer longing for the day when the kingdom will finally come. When the king will finally return and everything will be made right. It's a prayer for Revelation 19. If you want to turn with me there. 
the book of Revelation, as mysterious as it is in lots of its parts, the end is really the, the, the end is really the point. Because what the book of Revelation is what the book of Revelation is telling the people who first heard it was persevere. Things are going to be okay. Hold on. Be faithful. The king is coming. And so what John aims to do in Revelation is to give people a really a glimpse of the cosmic war that is happening and looks so dire and yet is going to end well. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so what we're praying for, we're praying for Revelation 19, that that God's reign would be a conquering reign. And we're praying for Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. When we pray for God to bring his kingdom, we're longing for that day, right? Because what happened in Genesis 3 is we let in all the mourning and all the crying and all the pain. And what Jesus came to do was to establish the beachhead, right? He, to establish the kingdom, right? To establish the church and our church as these little kingdom outposts, right? These little, these little kingdoms, this, this little picture of the kingdom of God all over the world. And what we're praying for is longing for that day when heaven and earth will meet once, once again, when, the, when all things will be made new and all of the junk and all of the sin and all of the stuff that we let in will be done away with forever. That's what we're praying for when we pray, God, may your kingdom come. Because we long to say, as John does at the end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus.
when Jesus showed up on the scene, read this in Mark 1, he said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. So, basically what he's saying is, all of the promises of the Old Testament, they're met today. Jesus shows up and he says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. And then he says this, Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you want to be a part of the kingdom? Do you want to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world? Do you want to long for the day when your sin won't trouble you anymore and when we won't hear news reports about angry young men killing innocent people? Then repent and believe in the good news of the kingdom and submit yourself to King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a a greater glimpse of your glory and that you would remind us once again that, that that we are part of a kingdom. Either we are participants in a rival kingdom that looks to set itself up against you and discredit your name and disparage your glory. Or we are a part of your kingdom. Which means we have submitted ourselves to you so that we can be rescued. So that we can finally be set free from sin and death and the ruler of this world. Lord, we know he still has power. We see his power break out often. We see it in our own lives, in our own community, and across the world. We also know that his days are numbered. That his kingdom will not stand, but yours will last forever. So, Lord, we pray, may your kingdom come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.